of the Christian Feminist Podcast on two cultural models of feminism, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I'm Nora Bonner, and with me today are Victoria Farmer and Leah Henning. Hello, Victoria and Leah. Hi. Hello. Okay, let's introduce ourselves to any new listeners. Victoria, do you want us to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am currently an adjunct instructor of English and Sociology at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Um, I recently completed my PhD in English Literature from Florida State University, and right now I'm working on teaching and trying to get some articles published. Okay. Thanks, Victoria. How about you, Leah? Uh, I'm Leah Henning. I am currently an MA student at Loyola University in Chicago, where I am studying uh, Renaissance and early modern European history. Um, It's the middle of the semester now, or beginning part of the semester, so I'm doing a lot of studying and working, as well as reading for this wonderful podcast. Yeah, well, we're glad you are. Um, I'm uh, thanks, Leah. I'm Nora Bonner, and I write fiction and I teach college English in Tallahassee, Florida. And I also sometimes play music around here too. Um, this semester, I'm working as an adjunct professor at Tallahassee Community College, and I also write sometimes for the local paper, which is the Tallahassee Democrat. Uh, I earned my MFA in fiction writing from FSC or Florida State in 2013, and I'm original. F- I'm originally from Detroit, and the novel I'm working on is an epic Detroit ghost narrative about Harry Houdini and his wife, Bess, um, which is really kind of hard to explain, so hopefully I'll publish it, and then I won't have to explain it. You can just read it. Um, that but, yeah. sounds like so much fun, Nora. <laughs> it really does. It's super fun to write, I'll tell you that much. Um, so, yeah. Uh, today we're going to do this podcast a little bit differently than than past Christian feminist podcasts. Um Usually it's kind of like a panel discussion, but we're going to have more of a roundtable because if you know your Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, they just have a huge body of work. They both have shows that were on TV for seven seasons. Um, actually, Poehler's is still going. Um, and uh, movies and shows and Saturday Night Live, and they both wrote books recently. So it's going to be more of a discussion than a panel. Um, so hopefully we'll figure that out. <laughs> But uh, it's going to be a little bit experimental, which is in the spirit of improvisation, um, so <laughs> which is related to our topic. So before we get to Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, we're going to answer some reader email or listener emails. Um, so Victoria, would you mind starting us off with the first one? Not at all. So our first email comes from someone that uh, most of you probably know. Comes from Nathan Gilmore over at the Christian Humanist. Um, it's pretty long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, In his first paragraph, he agrees with our questioning of Elizabeth Pickett's advice to male allies in episode 15 um, and thanks us for doing that. Um, And his second paragraph wants some extension of our discussion in episode 16. So here's that second paragraph. Going back to the sex positivism episode, I'm curious to know what you all view as good narratives in which to situate one's sex life before the wedding ceremony. I get that the damaged goods narrative, spit pictures or no, is ultimately harmful and before that inadequate to actual experience of living together. What I didn't hear from the episode is what narratives might better situate life before marriage. My instincts tell me that treating one's spouse as a blank slate before the ceremony is a bad idea, and I know that my own life before the wedding posed, and sometimes still poses, genuine obstacles to living well together. I'd be interested to hear, in whatever context, some alternatives to the spit pitcher model and the blank slate model. 
so first of all, a little bit of clarification, just in case you don't remember that episode. This spit pitcher that Nathan is talking about is a really common abstinence-only object lesson where there's a pitcher of clean water and everyone in the group is asked to spit in it and and someone in the group is asked if they want to drink it. They say no. This is a metaphor for someone who... um, is not a virgin upon marriage. The idea being that if your partner is not a virgin, you sleep with everyone that they have ever slept with. Um, it's about contamination. It's about shame. It's a pretty negative model. Uh, so that's, that's the spit picture to which he's referring. Uh, thanks Nate for your question. I think it's a really good question and, uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about it today. Uh, so here's my two cents on that. Um, probably unsurprisingly, given the person to whom I've chosen to yoke myself in marriage, uh, I tend to take a a pretty existentialist tack to this question. Uh, I think it's probably useful to think of yourself and your partner as the sum of your pre-marriage experiences when you're going into marriage. Uh, As individuals, you've been through good things and bad things, and those things uh, which have happened separately have shaped you into who you are Uh, both individuals and together. And because the person that you are pre-marriage is someone who the person that you are marrying loves and respects, that's a good thing. Uh, You're someone who's being loved by another person, not in spite of those uh, experiences, as in the spit picture model, but because of those experiences who have turned you into the person that you are. So I like this kind of... uh, shaping model better. I I think it treats our life experiences as, as adding to us, even the bad ones, rather than taking away from us as the pitcher model does. So that's what I think about that. Nora, can you add to that? Yeah. uh, Victoria asked me to answer this question because I'm getting married in the fall, uh, which I guess I should have mentioned in my, my introduction, but I prepared an answer and it was very similar to Victoria's. um, But I've also been kind of thinking about it in terms of the gospel stories and um, and just thinking about how the woman at the well story is a great example of um, at least the way that God views our pasts. You know, he knows what we've done, but he but what's remarkable to that woman is that Jesus knows everything that she's done, but she's still he's still talking to her and he still took his time to offer her new life. And I think that. um I think that's kind of the Christian way to not only view our partners, but also just view other people is that um, I think God calls us to be part of the transformation that he makes in our lives. And um, so that has to do with acknowledging the whole person, as Victoria said, and understanding that you're part of the work that God is doing in them. So that's kind of how I see it. Um, And of course, there's... um, it's also a time to exercise forgiveness if you need to, um, yourself and the other person. So, yeah, it was a great question. Um, I'm still thinking about it, too, so maybe next week I'll have a better answer, but <laughs> that's it. Um, so, cool. Thanks, Nate. Uh, our second email is from Stephanie Long. Uh, she writes... I have only recently started listening to podcasts, and yours has quickly become my favorite. Thanks for all the entertaining and insightful commentary. I've learned a lot. After listening to the Orange is New Black episode, I finally got around to watching that show, and I'm now completely hooked. I'd love to hear another episode on a similar pop culture product slash phenomenon. Thanks for a great podcast team. So, Stephanie, you are in luck, because today we are talking about two... uh, pretty important pop culture products slash phenomenons. Um, is that the way you pluralize phenomenon? I guess so. <laughs> uh, phenomena, I think, but that's Thank okay. Thank you. Um, I'm not a writer or anything. Um, so, yeah, um, we're going to talk about Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And also, um, if you're listening to this on the day it goes live, uh, it's Galentine's Day, which is a Parks and Rec um, reference and so happy Valentine's day if you don't know what that is let's have leslie nope amy puller's character explain it to us Valentine's day oh it's only the best day of the year every february 13th my lady friends and i leave our husbands and our boyfriends at home and we just come and kick it breakfast style ladies celebrating ladies it's like lilith fair minus the angst plus frittatas 
February 14th, Valentine's Day, is about romance. But February 13th, Galentine's Day, is about celebrating lady friends. It's wonderful, and it should be a national holiday. It should be a national holiday. Dear Congress, it's Leslie again. Okay, um, hopefully you remember that episode. It's one of my favorites for sure. Um, cool. Let's see. Uh, before we get to the talking points, we're going to introduce Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, and their combined careers. So, Leah, would you start us off? Uh, just tell us a little bit about Amy Poehler. Sure. Um, Amy Poehler is an actress, comedian, director, producer, and writer, so she has a really long um, resume. She was raised in Massachusetts. She graduated from Boston College and also studied improv at the Second City here in Chicago. Um, from there, she became a member of the improvisa- improvisational uh, comedy troupe, Upright Citizens Brigade, which then turned into the television show on Comedy Central. Um, Amy also became a cast member of Saturday Night Live, of course, between 2001 and 2008. And since 2009, she starred as Leslie Nope on the TV series Parks and Recreation. Amy is a 15-time Emmy Award nominee, and she just won a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a TV Series, Comedy or Musical, as well as a Peabody Award uh, in 2014. She has two kids, so she's a very happy mother. <laughs> um, stemming from this career is the website Amy Smart Girls, which has the slogan, Change the World by Being Yourself. Um, this website combines information, comedy, and community where young men and women are able to express their own concerns and uh, participate in forums, uh, connecting teens, parents, teachers, and fans to encourage things like volunteering, activism, cultural exchange, and self-expression. And Amy, of course, also has a great book called Yes, Please, which we will be discussing a little bit today. Um, Leslie Nope, of course, is her most iconic role to date uh, as the main character in Parks and Recreation. Leslie is an ambitious, well-read, hardworking character um, who is currently the deputy parks director of Pawnee, Indiana's Parks and Recreation Department, um, as well as a member of the city council. She's on numerous committees and has the overarching ambition to become the first female president of the United States. Leslie is firmly committed to the belief that government should provide for its people and also often goes above and beyond her duties to serve the people of Pawnee, which can put her at odds with the other characters. So that's Amy and Leslie. All right. Thank you, Leah. Um, I'm going to introduce Tina Fey and uh, also give a quick character description of her uh, her famous role as uh, Liz Lemon. So, Tina Fey has won eight Emmy Awards, um, most of them for her television writing for Saturday Night Live and 30 Rock, and so you can, I think of her primarily, and I think it seems from her book Bossy Pants, which she wrote in 2011, that she sort of thinks of herself as a writer first, um, but she, you know, I didn't write this down, but I think I remember that she went to the University of Virginia for her undergraduate degree, um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but, um, then she... But she liked Polar, and she met Amy Polar uh, in Chicago when they were were going to improv classes. Um, she's originally from Pennsylvania, uh, Dar- it's Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, which is near West Philadelphia. Um, so she writes about her life in Bossy Pants, um, which I just told you what she wrote in 2011 and it stayed on top of the New York Times bestseller list for five weeks and I think that her audio version was nominated for a Grammy so that's pretty cool um I still have to listen to that (laughs) but uh so in the book she describes how when she moved from New York uh moved to New York from Chicago. Uh, Lauren Michaels hired her to write for Saturday Night Live, um, which she did for several years before she got bumped up to perform the weekend update. So that was kind of the first way that she appeared on the show. And then, or regularly at least, um, after that, she, um, I forget how many years she worked at, did the weekend update, but then she, um, left the show and went to write 
and create 30 Rock. Um, so she's a writer and she stars in it and she stars as Liz Lemon. But then she's also, I, I actually first really got to know her when she came back to Saturday Night Live during the election of 2008 to play Sarah Palin. So she's, um, and she won an Emmy for that too in 2008. So um, that's kind of like how she became super famous, I would say, at least in my world. Um, so a little bit about 30 Rock. Um, it's a show where she's kind of a, she's a woman writer for a, in a man's world kind of situation. Um, she works for Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Donaghy. Um, Liz Lemon um, is kind of treading the lines between um career and family, which we actually talked about a lot in our lean in discussion f a few weeks ago. Um, there's a lot of lean in stuff that came back to me while reading bossy pants, but, um, but those issues are explored, um, about what a woman should be doing with her life. Um, and she's kind of known as being like a flawed character, um, but endearingly flawed. Um, when, Alec Baldwin's character Fritz meets her on the pilot. He sums her up by saying, you are a New York third wave feminist, college educated, single and pretending to be happy about it, overscheduled, undersexed. You buy any magazine that says healthy body image on the cover. And every two years you take up knitting for a week. So that's the way he <laughs> describes her. And so, and she says, oh, that's pretty close to the truth or something like that. So she kind of concurs with him. Um, and then another description of her character that I came across is from an article from The New Yorker um, and that was written in February 2012. Uh, the author is Emily Nestbaum, who is the television commentator for The New Yorker. But the article is called In Defense of Liz Lemon, and she kind of um, does exactly what the title says. She defends the character over the changes that have gone um over the seasons, but she describes Liz Lemon as a strange, specific, workaholic, NPR-worshipping, white guilt-infected, sardonic, curmudgeonly, hyper-nerdy New Yorker. So I think with those two descriptions, you should probably get a sense of what Liz Lemon is like. Um, so, yeah, she's um, a writer for a show... Um, a sketch comedy show, so it's a little bit similar to her experience on Saturday Night Live, I guess we're supposed to assume. Um, so that's it for Tina Fey. Um, how about telling us a bit about what these women have done together? Would you mind doing that, Victoria? Sure. Um, so a, a little bit of, of overlap, some things that Nora and Leah have already said. Um, Tina Fey joins SNL in 1997 um, and becomes head writer in 1999. Uh, in 2000, she gets the Weekend Update co-anchor slot with Jimmy Fallon, uh, a thing that is close to my heart. Tina and Jimmy were my first update anchors and the first cast that I really got into um, when I first started watching SNL as a teenager. Uh, later in 2001, just after September 11th, um, when the nation was sort of worried about um, mood and, and Polar says in Yes, Please, she wasn't sure if, if comedy would still be a thing um, when she joined SNL. Uh, so she comes on in 2001, um, partly at the behest of Faye, who, as Nora mentioned, um, they, they were already friends. They uh, already knew each other. Um, lots of great stuff on SNL between them. Um, they are responsible for um, writing and or starring in some of my favorite SNL commercial parodies. Uh, I'm just going to mention a couple of them quickly uh, right now. And also, while doing so, shout out Paula Pell, who's uh, a, a great um, longtime SNL writer who helps with some of these uh one parody that I really love is the Mom Jeans parody, which has both uh, Faye and Polar in it and talks about kind of women's fashion and um, this divide between sexiness and, and motherhood in a really interesting way. And my other favorite, which I think also has both of them in it, is the On You Well uh, parody, which is a, a parody of, of birth control 
um, commercials and how they frame women as sort of demons possessed by PMS. So uh, if you haven't seen those, check them out. They're very funny. They talk about, um, I think, very relatable gender uh, issues in pretty hilarious ways. Uh, So then... The next big project that they collaborate on is that they become the first uh, all-female co-anchor team of Weekend Update beginning in 2004. Um, Two women have not co-anchored Weekend Update either before or since. Also in 2004, um, we get their most famous, probably most well-known collaboration, which is the... uh, film Mean Girls, directed by Mark Waters. This film adapts Rosalind Wiseman's self-help book, Queen Bees and Wannabes, Helping Your Daughter Survive Clicks, Gossip, Boyfriends, and the New Realities of Girl World. Um, I think that this, the fact that this film is an adaptation of a nonfiction book speaks to... um, Faye's abilities as a comedy writer. It's such a good, um, funny, well-written, sharp, concise film, um, and also speaks to her ability to surround herself with a lot of really cool, funny friends. Um, Faye plays a teacher in the film. Polar plays the mother of uh, one of the titular mean girls, Regina George. Her most famous line, as most of you probably know, is, I'm not a regular mom, I'm a cool mom. Uh, So more exploration of of kind of types of femininity there. Uh, In addition to Faye and Polar, the film also contains a couple other notable uh, appearances by SNL alums. Tim Meadows plays the very put-upon high school principal in the film, and Anna Gasteyer plays um, the main character, Katie Heron, played by Lindsay Lohan, plays her mother. So lots of uh, good SNL community there. And the last big Faye Polar collaboration that I'm going to talk about is the most recent. Uh, They've co-hosted the Golden Globes together three times uh, in 2012, 2013, and uh, they said the last time, last year, in 2014. Uh, Just to give you an idea of kind of the material from uh, from those co-hosts, the kind of jokes that they tell and why they're so important. I am going to uh, probably botch the delivery of my two favorite Golden Globes uh, jokes from this year's broadcast, with apologies to Amy and Tina, because this is not going to be as good as them. So the first one... Um, is about Amal Alamuddin and George Clooney, who have recently been married. Uh, And they say, Alamuddin is a human rights lawyer who worked on the Enron case, an advisor to Kofi Annan on Syria, and was appointed to a three-person commission investigating rules of war violations in the Gaza Strip. And Polar chimes in and says, so tonight her husband is getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, The whole room laughs at this, including, to his great credit, George Clooney himself, Uh, So we get a a joke about um, sexism and and career bias. And then my other favorite joke from from this year's Golden Globes. In the 1960s, thousands of black people from all over America came together with one common goal, to form Sly and the Family Stone. But seriously, the movie Selma is about the American civil rights movement, and that totally worked, and now everything's fine. So these two jokes just blow my mind. It, it blows my mind that these women are hosting a mainstream award show seen by pretty much the entire United States of America and that they're using this platform to talk about workplace double standards and the fact that we don't live in a post-racial society. And they're doing these things, addressing these huge issues in such an approachable, funny way. Uh, so... Those are are just a few reasons why I think Faye and Polar are are such an important uh, force in pop culture and in feminism today. Yeah, um, I love those jokes, too. (laughs) So I'm glad you brought them up. Um, I'm thinking a lot about um, just the way that comedy has made possible for them to do things that um, maybe they wouldn't have been able to uh, feminist things. And so um, that's kind of, I'm going to use that as to kind of segue into um, if we could just each talk about what, 
these women mean to us personally, um, maybe a little bit about how we came to know them and um, just what you think that they are contributing to feminism. Um, Leah, would you mind starting us off for that? Sure. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was that I first saw them or recognized them in, but I was still exploring my I, my identity as a feminist when I first became exposed to Tina and Amy, and it really just blew me away. I, Like I said, I don't remember what I first saw or read about them, but I just remember being impressed and thinking, wow, I really want to be awesome like them. Um, they wouldn't always outright identify themselves as feminists, but just the way they held themselves as leading women to be respected. And with jokes like what Victoria just, uh, just read, um, that was something that I had never really seen on television before or in pop culture. Um, and that's, really what I think they contribute to feminism and definitely what they contributed to me. They're beautiful, talented, funny career women, um, with families and they've worked really hard to make it, uh, to make it to this wonderful place that they're at in a highly male dominated field. And they're still very outspoken and empathetic about, and, emphatic about their beliefs in women's rights and they really just make good feminist role models yeah thanks Leah. victoria would you like to share your um how they've influenced you and how maybe a little bit about how you became to be such a big fan sure uh i have been a fan of i was actually a fan of tina fey first um my husband has been a fan of Amy Poehler more than, uh, longer than I think, uh, lots of people had. He was an early adopter, uh, of that. So credit to him to deepening my love of her, but I was a fan of Tina Fey first. And, um, as I said, she was a part of my first SNL cast. Um, I don't remember what comedian it is, but someone, some comedian says, uh, your favorite SNL cast is the one that you, um, come across when you're 15. Um, that's true for me, except I was 13 in 1999 um, when I started watching uh, the cast that was uh, Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon and Rachel Dratch and Anna Gasteyer um, and all those guys. And I remember um, just really liking, I think probably Weekend Update was my first, like, this woman is super cool um, experience. First of all, I am a woman with shortish dark hair and glasses, which means in the late 90s, early 2000s, everyone told me I looked just like Tina Fey, <laughs> um, which I'm not sure that's actually true, but, you know, it's cool seeing someone who sort of looks like you represented on TV, I guess, so that's part of it. But I remember just really loving um, her her back and forth with Fallon. I could tell that, like, she wasn't afraid to give as good as she got Um Fallon's weekend update persona was was likable but but sort of um sort of smirky and sort of like look how adorable I am and she was not afraid at all to um play like a, a little straighter a little darker um but but very forcefully against that so that's something that I that I respected a whole lot um I am a huge fan of both 30 Rock and Parks and Rec. I've seen every single episode of both shows um, multiple times. I've probably watched through all of 30 Rock three times. And um, and less uh, less Parks and Rec because it's, it's still on the air. Um, and at, at the risk of, of being too spoilery, um, please watch the seventh season, which is airing right now, guys. It's so amazing. It does such a good job. Um, with work-life balance stuff and great marriage equality stuff. Uh, it's great. Watch it all. If you haven't, you're missing out. Um, but one one thing that I wanted to mention about Amy Poehler is um, I, I think that she does something different. Her, her tone, uh, the tone of her feminism is different from the tone of Faye's. Um, Faye and 30 Rock are kind of um, sharper and zanier and I would say that Polar and Parks and Rec are 
um, a, a little bit more sincere, a little warmer. Um, and I'm really glad that both of those approaches exist. Uh, and I feel like I'm rambling now, and I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, those differences uh, later. So those are my personal experiences. I love Amy and Tina, and I wish we could be real-life friends. The end. <laughs> well, your life isn't over yet. Maybe there's still time. Maybe they'll listen to this and seek you out or something. <laughs> oh, no. What if they're listening? Um, hi, Tina. Hi, Amy. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm really late to this party. Um, so it's kind of funny that I'm moderating this episode. I first also did notice Tina Fey on Weekend Update, and I just remember being impressed by her because she was in control. I felt like she was a woman in control, which was not a image that I was used to, maybe. I don't know. I was pretty young then, too, so I didn't really um, critically analyze it too much. Um, but then I noticed her again, like I said before, when she played Sarah Palin, um, which that that was a very dramatic election for me. Um, so that was a interesting time for her to come out and, um, it, you know, to, I think that was probably at least in her book, she seems to acknowledge that as kind of her biggest public move. Um, so it's kind of interesting, uh, that it came that way. And, um, she, my favorite chapter in her book, um, which is called, Hold on. It's called Sarah, Oprah, and Captain Hook. Um, she talks about her experience with that. Um, so if you haven't read the book, definitely read that part. But just that skit and how it kind of gave us um, a brand of feminism that made us analyze. And Amy Poehler's in the skit, too. She plays Clinton. And um, just being at the double standards uh, or just the two different kind of stereotypes that um, people impose on women. Um Palin was supposed to be like, you know, kind of ditzy and um, pretty, pretty and ditzy. And Amy Poehler was like the angry um, older woman. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so just like the fact that they could do that with also talking about the election really impressed me too. So I thought about that. Um, but it wasn't until last fall that I started watching Parks and Recreation for real, and it just kind of, like, got in my bloodstream where I just became obsessed. Like, all I wanted to do was watch that show, and I think I had, like, a Facebook post somewhere about how I bought Yes, Please because I just I just needed more Amy Poehler. Like, when I couldn't watch the show, I just needed to have her, like, on my ebook app on my mobile phone just, like, so I could read something that she'd say because I was so obsessed with her. Um I don't know. It's just like I needed her around me, which is really kind of creepy. But um, that's just the the reaction I had to that show. Um, and it's not just her on the show, even though her character definitely um, brings out some kind of strange optimism in me that I've never seen another character do about, like, what a woman can do and um, and just, like, what, you know, maybe good intentions could actually get you somewhere and, um, just like making me think about such wonderful things. And so I really appreciated that. Um, and then I started watching 30 rock basically so I could prepare for this podcast. So I've seen two seasons. Um, I've had a month to get to know 30 rock and I've seen a little bit of the third season and it's starting to get into my bloodstream in the same way that parks and rec did where that's kind of like, all I want to do is watch the show. Um, but I really loved Bossy Pants. I read that um, pretty recently, and I just thought that was a really, like, important book, I think, in my life, um, just partly because of how it just really made me see how talented Faye was as a writer, um, and it just really knocked my socks off. Um, the comic timing in that book is so amazing. There's so many little jokes in there, and I've never laughed so hard. Um at a book before, so I'm really impressed with that, but she also just, um, is able to cover so many topics, and, um, that are important, but the thing that I am most thinking about them both, as far as, like, shaping my own idea of feminism is something I brought up earlier, which is just the role of comedy and being, a, um, at least in my personal sense of being a liberated woman, um, I, have relied, I think, a lot, at least, you know, growing up and in my family circles of kind of breaking the 
a demure woman stereotype by being a crass or be um, just like silly or goofy or um, trying to, I don't know. I think about comedy as a source of my own empowerment, um, especially when I teach. Um, It's a way that I can kind of, sometimes I joke that when I teach, um, that I'm trying not to make it the Nora show because I feel a little bit like I'm a stand-up comic. Um, maybe you girls have felt like a stand-up comic before when you're in front of your classes. I um, always you... say that teaching is 75% stand-up comedy. Yeah, I, I definitely yeah. think that's true. Yeah, it's been a huge part of my own teaching journey. Um, but also just like I think a lot about writing um, as comic writing is being a the hardest kind of writing to do it's also the hardest kind of acting to do um uh i have a theater degree so i also connect to them kind of as performers or just um and i actually kind of dabbled a little bit in the detroit improv scene and this is kind of weird but like people a lot of people will like start in the Detroit improv scene and then they go to Chicago and then they go to LA. And so like a couple of my friends were actually on parks and rec and, um, and I'm like two degrees away from Keegan, Michael key, who just was a, played a big role in the last episode of parks and rec. Um, but so I really feel connected to them as performers too. Um, thinking about that. Um, but they just kind of remind me of Dorothy Parker in a way of Dorothy Parker, found liberation through making people laugh, but also being kind of dark and being able to, um, kind of break through, um, stereotypes or whatever women's roles by being funny and witty. Um, so that's kind of how I think of them. Um, they're really great examples of the power that comedy brings, um, in those situations. So that's what I'm thinking about. Um, so from there, let's just talk about, you know, these characters and what, you know, maybe how you relate to them or which one, I guess I'm curious, Leah, which character do you feel like you most resonate with? Um, Leslie Noper, Liz Lemon, and what is it about them that you resonate with? Uh, um, that's a very difficult question. Okay. You can answer uh, it in a different way if you want. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, I, I think like a lot of viewers who watch 30 Rock, they recognize a lot of themselves in Liz Lemon. Um, not necessarily good parts, um, but like uh, the eating junk food or mismanaging money or um, just her awkwardness, her social awkwardness, I guess. Um, those really stand out to me where... Um, I realize like, oh, I stress eat when, when I'm sad or when I have a deadline or I forget to eat at all. Um, just like Liz Lemon. But then with Leslie Nope, I recognize a lot more of the positive things, um, such as my, uh, propensity to, uh, insert myself into conversations which um, I might not necessarily uh, be initially involved in, but I'm interested in. Um, Something that happens oftentimes in the classroom, Um, which isn't a bad thing. It's putting yourself out there. It's being a little bit crazy to uh, just expand yourself. Um, no, I totally agree. I feel like um, I just become so clumsy and learn how to deal with my clumsiness as being a teacher because <laughs> I'm in front of an audience and I always run into the board <laughs> while I'm writing on it. And I'm always like trying to make that a comic moment and things like that. So definitely, um, I feel you on that. Um, what about you, Victoria? Who do you resonate with? Or is it the same, like different ways or... Uh, I think I'm definitely more Leslie than Liz. Um, I, I I agree with Leah in that if I see myself in Liz, it's primarily my negative traits. Um, I, I really enjoy eating cheese a lot uh, occasionally at night, so there's that. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I actually, um, I connect a lot 
to the Liz and Jack relationship too. Um, my mentors haven't been primarily male, but, um, I, I really appreciate, um, that depiction of her being mentored by someone who is very different from her, but they still can sort of, um, learn from each other and, and relate to each other, even though they have different kind of political and social viewpoints. Um, I, I know that, Jack was was based a lot on Lorne Michaels, and so um, it's it's cool that she can kind of give back to to that relationship in that way. Um, but primarily, yeah, when I when I think of myself as having Liz Lemon moments, it's like um, when when I realize that I'm trying to balance too much and it's not working. Um, the the easiest example of this is that when I mess something up, I say blurg. Um, which is, is one of Liz Lemon's catchphrases. Um, yeah, so that's, that's another way that, uh, her comedy has sort of infiltrated my life. But primarily, um, I, I see much more of myself, both positive and negative, in Leslie Nope. Um, I am an idealist to my core. Uh, I want everyone to love each other. I want everyone to get along. Um, I, I work really hard at those kinds of things. Uh, I, like Leslie Nope, am, not to shoot my own horn, but I am anyway, uh, I am queen of presents. I am super good at giving gifts and knowing, um, like, sentimental things to, uh, to give people. Uh, and, and this, this next thing, a little bit more negative. Um, I, because I'm an idealist and because I care so much about, um, my passions and the people around me, I argue probably too much and too vehemently uh, when I care about things. There's a really great line um, that Ben Wyatt played by Adam Scott, who's Leslie's, um, eventually Leslie's husband. Uh, He says, arguing with her is like arguing with the sun. Um, This may or may not be a thing that my husband says to me when I get too heated about things. Uh, So I I know that when arguing with the sun comes out, I I need to kind of back off a little bit. So, yeah, those are uh, some of my connections with with the characters. Oh, actually, one more thing I want to say um, is that even more than 30 Rock, um, the vocabulary of Parks and Rec is the vocabulary of my daily life. Uh, and, and specifically of my marriage, um, Michael and I say so many things from that show to each other as kind of shorthand. Uh, if, if any of you are, are in a committed relationship, you know that each relationship kind of develops these phrases and words that are shorthand for other things. A lot of ours come from Parks and Rec. Uh, we say, uh, I love you and I like you a lot. Um, when we're trying to encourage the other person, uh, we say, do your thing, baby Smurf, which is something that Ben says to Leslie when he is, uh, under, uh, medication in the hospital. And my, uh, probably my favorite is, uh, you guys know Michael and I work at the same school and when I get out of the car every day, he drops me off at the door and one or the other of us always says, uh, calculator when we say goodbye, uh, which is a, a recurring Ben Wyatt joke. So thank you, Amy Poehler and Mike Schur and Parks and Rec for, uh, giving me the vocabulary of my marriage. <laughs> the vocabulary of my marriage. That should be like an essay in your book of memoirs, I think. Um, that's awesome. I... Personally, um, I've been thinking about this article that a friend sent me um, called A Nope in the World Full of Lemons. Um, Hannah Brooks read it. Hannah Brooks Olson read it for a website called The Medium. Um, And she basically argues in there that people should be identifying with nope more than Tina Fey, but people, or sorry, (laughs) nope more than lemon, but, um, uh, and she kind of argues that nope is better and that kind of thing. but I guess I've been th- that made me start to think about uh, Leslie Nope's flaws as a character that I relate to, too, because um, this is kind of fiction 101, but um, one thing that we learn in fiction classes is that if you want to, to connect to your audience, you have to give your characters flaws, or <laughs> they'll just be these kind of like people on a pedestal and no one really cares about them. But so I was thinking 
like Leslie Nope is such a great character there, and I do feel like I can relate to her and it must be through her flaws. And then I um, recently just watched maybe my favorite episode. I have a lot of favorite episodes, but where she marries the, the gay penguins and um, the way that she has to fight her ego. Um, like she wants to be a public servant, but like she, and so that really gets challenged because one side of the public the polarized public reacts, wants her to step down for affirming gay marriage. And the other, um, the gay community in Pawnee celebrates her in a gay bar. And, (laughs) um, so she's like, really like, she's kind of like flip flopping a little bit and she just really wants to please everybody. But really her heart is with, with, um, being publicly adored. Um, so the thought of being like, her treading the line between being a public servant and being publicly adored is something that I really feel like I can relate to Leslie Nope about. Um, Even though I don't really see myself going into government, um, I was raised in an environment where there was a little bit of optimism about what the government could do for the people and just kind of actually it's kind of like a a faint hope in the city of Detroit, like maybe the government will help us kind of um, throw us a lifesaver, you know. Um, So Leslie Nope's kind of political optimism is something that I just really love. (laughs) I just want her to be right. I don't know if she is, but I just really want her to be right. Um, And with Liz Lemon, I think the fact that um, she is also treading an interesting line between being creative and selling out, um, which is at least in the first two seasons, I can speak for those. Um, I think this is also kind of like really similar to the problem of being a woman and having a career and having a family. There's something like really similar about these two um, dilemmas. Um, And a lot of it has to do with just kind of um, the trap of using the outside environment to dictate, you know, what you should do rather than following your heart kind of problem um and so I really kind of appreciate that about Liz Lemon like um at least in the beginning she's really trying to keep some she's really trying to keep some creative integrity on the show and she is really creatively talented so um but sometimes that gets like you know uh sideswiped or whatever by the business so the balance between creativity and business is something that I really like about that character um so that's what I see um, do either of you have anything to add about that before we move on? Uh, about think, these two characters? Uh, I think we're good. I think we pretty much covered it. Okay, cool. Let's talk um, about their friendship now, um, which is something that I've actually talked to Victoria briefly about. Um, just something that we love about them is is how well they demonstrate friendship. <laughs> and so, um, Victoria, you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, aspect of them. What is it about their friendship that you love? <laughs> um, I think that for me, like one of the most feminist things about them is how how much they love each other kind of publicly, how you can tell from their comedy and from their work together um, that these women are in it together. They They love each other. They respect each other. They work well together. Um, and and seeing that relationship on a kind of national media stage has just been so gratifying for me as a woman because um, I, I understand um, sort of looking for that voice that matches yours, particularly if, you, if you're someone working in um, a, a field where men are, are given more power and respect. And I think academia, even though women are starting to outnumber men, I think academia definitely still um, – counts as as this place of of primary male uh, social power and privilege. I definitely think that as a female teacher, I have to work harder to to be an authority um, in the classroom than I I would if I were a man. So it's it's been important to me to collect kind of other female academics who... um, who are going through the same thing and who kind of understand what I'm going through. And, and that understanding that, um, mutual respect is something that I think the Amy Tina relationship embodies for me. Um, and one of the best representations of what is to me beautiful and powerful about this relationship, um, happens in bossy pants. There's a, a 
chapter called um, I Don't Care If You Like It, the first in a series of love letters to Amy Poehler. Um, And I'm going to read an excerpt from that now. Uh, Amy Poehler was new to SNL, and we were all crowded into the 17th floor writer's room, waiting for the Wednesday read-through to start. There were always a lot of noisy comedy bits going on in that room. Amy was in the middle of some such nonsense with Seth Meyers across the table, and she did something vulgar as a joke. I can't remember what it was exactly, except it was dirty and loud and unladylike. Jimmy Fallon, who was arguably the star of the show at the time, turned to her and in a faux squeamish voice said, Stop that. It's not cute. I don't like it. Amy dropped what she was doing, went black in the eyes for a second, and wheeled around on him. I don't, word redacted, care if you like it. Jimmy was visibly startled. Amy went right back to enjoying her ridiculous bit. With that exchange, a cosmic shift took place. Amy made it clear that she wasn't there to be cute. She wasn't there to play wives and girlfriends in the boys' scenes. She was there to do what she wanted to do, and she did not, word redacted again, care if you like it. Um, and and there's a, another passage later in the book where Faye says that at that moment, um, she knew Uh, She knew that they were sort of kin to each other and that her heart said to her, my friend is here. My friend is here. Uh, And and I first listened to Bossy Pants on audiobook and and still right now thinking of her and the the kind of joy in her voice when she says, my friend is here. My friend is here. And how I have felt that same joy um, in in meeting other like-minded women. Uh, It makes me me tear up a little bit. I I think that's such a wonderful, beautiful, valuable thing. So uh, I I really love that moment of their friendship a lot. I really love that moment in the book too, because I just really feel like I even though I had already read Amy Poehler's book, I felt like that moment uh, where she's sitting and joking with Seth Meyers is, is where I really felt like I knew Amy Poehler for the first time through Faye's eyes. So that was really cool. Um, what I, actually, I'll, I'll go ahead and chime in on this one now. Um, for me, what I really love about them which I think they demonstrate is how not to be competitive. And I kind of talked about this a little bit in the lean in, um, episode, episode 13, um, where that's a big challenge. Um, as far as like, you know, progressing as women and, you know, the feminist clause is just how we are. We pitch ourselves against one another. And, um, what's kind of interesting about both, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler is I've heard them both talk about how the business kind of, at least the entertainment business pitches women against each other. And, um, in bossy pants, Tina Fey says in a chapter called windy city full of meat, which is a great title. Um, she says when she's talking about, um, when she's breaking into improv, she says, this is what I tell young women who ask me for career advice. People are going to trick you to make you feel that you are in competition with one another. You're up for a promotion if they go with a woman. Don't be fooled. You are not in competition with another woman. You are in competition with everyone. And I think that, like, really just kind of, you know, like, lifted the veil from my eyes a little bit about just, like, oh, that's true. You know, like... It does, I feel, I feel like in the writing world, at least, um, and in academia a little bit, um, a little bit less in academia, but, um, definitely in the performance industry, it's like, you, you know, there's a woman's role in this play and everyone, you know, oh, there's a great woman's role, which is hard to come by. And then like, okay, so who is my competition? And then, um, so it's all, um, it really does impress me that they're able to kind of get past their competition. And I think that, um, Polar kind of talks about this a little bit when she talks in her book about, um, acknowledge, like when other people get things, women's get things, she's, she has learned to say, that's great for you. Like, and just kind of, you know, understand that other people get things that she doesn't necessarily have to have. I think that's part of her ability to refrain from being competitive. And also she talks about um, she was able to defeat some of that by um, instead of trying to be this is, you know, the industry's ideal. She just found out what her own strength was and played to that. And she kind of gives that advice. So I think that that really plays out um, 
it kind of paves the way for them to be such good friends and that uh, these two kind of ideologies about how to, you know, not be competitive. Um, but what about you, Leah? What do you think about um, with their friendship? Well, I definitely agree with everything that you both have said. Um, I guess what stands out to me about their friendship is that it's so public. Um, Cause that's cr- coming up all the time in pop culture uh, are these friendships between actors, actresses, um, directors, whoever. Um, and they all turn on each other at some point. Um, and yet we've been able to watch uh, Amy and Tina for almost their entire careers because they've been friends for that long. Um, consistently being friendly uh, through competitions. In fact, they'll make a joke of it um, in some of their Golden Globe presentations when they're both nominated. Uh, they're, they make jokes like, oh, I, I hate your guts and yes, you're my nemesis. And then they turn back and they smile at the camera and everybody knows that they're making a joke of it. And, um, and there's that fantastic beauty pageant bit. I forget which golden globes it is, but do you guys remember all of the, uh, all the female comedy nominees, um, that year acted like beauty pageant contestants? I remember her writing about it, right? Doesn't she talk about it in Yes, please. Or no? Yeah, she does. Um, she she talks about kind of engineering that bit um, because what you were saying, Nora, about like wanting something that everybody else has. She wanted to kind of draw attention to that kind of woman on woman competition while making fun of it. Um, so she she staged this beauty pageant bit, and all the other women were totally on board with it. Yeah, and I remember watching that moment and saying like, somebody out there gets it, like. She just totally understands what that's about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's moments like that where I, I'm just loving their friendship because it's so real and genuine and kind of a, a, an F you to all of Hollywood who manufactures these fake friendships from time to time for publicity's sake. Good point. I mean, that the authenticity of them is really like amazing. Um, and I never, I wasn't thinking about the manufactured friendships, but that's so true. Um, and, but not only manufactured friendships, but manufactured fights and manufactured falling outs and, um, or maybe they're not manufactured, but they're definitely exploited. So the fact that they're able to kind of maintain this, um, it's really great. I hope, you know, every woman everywhere, you know, <laughs> recognizes that about them. Um, well, I guess it's not too different, the topic of friendship and um, our next topic, which is how do we see this relating to our own faith and um, Christianity? Um, since this is the Christian Feminist Podcast, um, we should definitely talk about how we connect them to our own kind of, you know, as we say down here, walks with God. So um, how about uh, Victoria, you want to start us again with that part? Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so I, first I want to say, um, I haven't been super impressed with the way that religion has been handled on, um, Parks and Rec or on 30 Rock. I think that mostly the religious characters are kind of cardboardy and broad. Um, I, I do want to kind of walk that back a little bit because we're, we're dealing with, um, sitcoms we're dealing with comedy and absurdity a lot um in both shows so i do think that um some of the one-dimensionality in the characters um characters like marshall and Marsha langdon which um they figure prominently in the episode nora mentioned earlier um the kind of penguin same-sex marriage episode um they're members of the uh society for Family Stability Foundation, the FSSF, which is so hard to say, um, and they're uh, 
they're very appearance oriented. They're super Christian. They're super abstinence only. Um, Marshall is obviously a closeted, repressed gay man. Um, so pretty, pretty broadly drawn. Um, they, they are people of faith who don't seem to understand things about like grace and, and stuff like that. Um, but I, I do think because of the genre, we're supposed to read that as a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, same with Kenneth played by Jack McBrayer on 30 rock. Um, Kenneth is a page, uh, at 30 Rockefeller center. Um, he wants to serve the actors a whole lot. Um, he's also the only kind of vocal Christian on the show and he's, um, he's a rube. He's backward. Um, he's from stone mountain, Georgia, uh, which they portray as like a backwoods hole. Uh, it is not, it is a metropolitan area. Uh, though, again, I, I don't think we can take this completely at face value. I think it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, partly because um, Jack Breyer, the actor who plays him, is... Uh, Jack McBreyer, the actor who plays him, is originally from um, Macon, Georgia. And Kenneth, when Kenneth was first being written, was being written by um, Donald Glover, an actor you guys might know from his acting career on Community or his rapping career. He raps as Childish Gambino. Um, but Glover used to be a writer for 30 Rock, and he himself is from Stone Mountain. Um, so I, I think there's a, a little bit of, as I said, tongue-in-cheek there as well. Though I do wish, just because I, I like them so much, I would like them, I think, to, um, to, to give a, a little bit more depth and a little bit more respect to religious characters um though yeah i I think there there is a a degree of of complexity there because of genre but outside of outside of the character depictions if i can uh talk for just a, a little bit more um i think that there is a lot that my faith and my practice of my faith can be gained uh from some of the good uh good things that we've already mentioned. Um, these are women who support each other. Um, they, they are a community. They, they look out for the people around them. Um, one of the things that I love about Yes, Please, Amy Poehler's memoir is how polyvocal it is, how she gives actual space in her book for other people's voices. There are parts of the book written by um, Seth Meyers, by Mike Schur, creator of Parks and Rec. Um, that my, my favorite chapter of the book is probably the one where Poehler and Schur talk back and forth in um, – in footnotes and paragraphs um, about creating the show, and you can just tell how much they love and support each other. There are also passages um, in the book from her, from her parents, um, which are really nice. And there's a chapter in the book called "Let's Build a Park," where she devotes a paragraph to each of her um, Parks and Rec co-stars. It's such a great ensemble cast. So she gives space for glorification of friendship and community, um, in a book that's supposed to be about her. And, and I think, um, I think we can see the message of Christ in that, even if it's not an overtly Christian message. I think she is someone who understands, um, how to love her neighbor as herself and someone that understands that everyone is our neighbor. So that's my two cents on that. Oh, yeah, I love that about, you know, the conversation about neighbors. Um, that's definitely on the show, and um, I totally agree with that. I want to refute your um, – <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't want to refute, but I, I just want to say that, like, I see Kenneth really differently, I think. Um, I I kind of see that – and I felt this way when I was reading Faye's book, too, about her relationship with Christianity seems a little bit more open than, um, she seems to be having more of a conversation with it maybe than, um, than Amy Poehler is in her book or the, um, the characters are on Parks and Rec. Um, because I see something about Kenneth that like everybody really loves him. Um, and, or at least it seemed that way when he was applying to the, uh, internship at the, um, at the Olympics and everyone was just trying to help him along. And he like had this like big glorifying moment where he like does this Olympic thing to turn in his application. Um, but I kind of felt like his Christianity is a part of why they love him. Like his kind of, and it is kind of portrayed simply, uh, or like in a simplified way. And, um, but like, he's so 
adorable. <laughs> I find him to be really adorable. And I think that has to, it, I almost wonder if they sees like she's able to recognize a way that Christianity can, can shape someone in a good way. I, I, I see a little glimpse of that with him. You can disagree with me if you want, but that's kind of how I see it. Part of the reason I love him is because he um, is trying to be faithful in this like really hedonistic <laughs> environment. And it's, but I think that there's something enduring about that. Um, he doesn't always succeed. Um, no, that's true. I, I think you make a really good point, And I, I am going to agree with what you said about Kenneth being, um, being likable everybody does love him and they sort of love him because he's so different from them too um something that jack says a lot um and that liz says a lot too uh they they use the phrase lovable goon um to (laughs) to describe him that is a phrase that pops up over and over and um and yeah they they do seem to have a lot of respect for him there's that one episode where jack tries to convince kenneth to steal cable um and and kenneth won't do it and Jack basically says, like, I, I thought that you were just dumb and backward and stupid, but actually you have integrity and that's great. Um, so, yeah, I, I do. I think you're right, Nora. I think that there is um, more nuance than I sort of originally uh, portrayed, um, though I, I, I do think that Kenneth is, is patronized on the show more than I would like to see him be totally patronized. I agree with that. Um but it doesn't seem as vicious as <laughs> Parks and Rec. It's like, I do not want that couple to be the Christians on the show. Um, there seems to be more of a dismissal. <laughs>